just a few minutes ago, our president handed me these instructions, and, and I'll share them with you. I said, just a few minutes ago, our president handed me these instructions, and I'll share them with you. He said, uh, don't forget to tell who you are. Well, he already did it, but in case you, you've already forgotten, <laughs> my name is Ralph Newman. He said, you won't be personally introduced. He doesn't read his own notes. <laughs> Please try to keep the talk and question period within time limits. Well, that's up to you. It'll be up to me, too, if I, as far as John is concerned. But at the end of the meeting, uh, you can direct questions to everyone, uh, confined only to the amount of time left. I've introduced John Simon so many times that to keep from being bored myself, not to discuss your own boredom, I have tried introducing him the normal way. I've done it backwards, sidewards, you know, standing on my head and everything else. And I think I've indicated to all of you who've heard me before the depth of my affection and interest in a man I've known for more than 35 years and for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect. I won't discuss his career. You know he is executive director of the Ulysses S. Grant Association. He's the editor of the Grant Papers, the only editor for their associates, but he's been the editor of these papers ever since the beginning. And I think that's a record for any of the papers, publications that the government has helped sponsor. I'm positive that the Grant Papers have been produced at a lower cost per volume than any other uh, papers project, and it is all due to John's superb scholarship and dedication to this task. He is not only the greatest living authority on Ulysses S. Grant in this particular era following that of Catton and Nevins and other distinguished friends of ours of the past. He, in our opinion, is the leading Civil War scholar. The Grant papers are a fantastic contribution to our study of the Civil War. In, when the Civil War centennial was being thrust upon us, and there some of us viewed with great concern the federal Civil War centennial, uh, some of us thought that there ought to be something coming out of that period a little more meaningful than reenactments and uh, quarrels over whether we meet in Charleston or not and whether all of the citizens will be welcome at certain hotels. And we decided that the papers of the winning pitcher in that game, Lowell, uh, <laughs> would be the greatest lasting production. We decided to create the Stephen A. Duck, the Ulysses S. Grant Association. That's what happens when you have a dual personality and you're involved with Stephen Douglas, too. Uh, and I went out with John and Mr. Ziff of the Ohio Historical Society to call on Ulysses S. Grant III 
to ask his blessing for the project because without the Grant family help we would be dead and they enthusiastically supported it and I then uh, turned the task over to John who was then on the faculty of Ohio State University a few years later we moved him to Illinois and he's been here ever since every volume of the grant papers have been published has met with fantastic critical uh, praise. I keep wondering about what the reviewers can say the next time a volume comes out because you think they have used up their supply of adjectives. But now the uh, Civil War years are over and now John is in a way facing a tougher task because he's got to make the present the years between the end of the war and Grant's becoming president in his last days. Uh, and it's a little more demanding in that you haven't got the excitement and the tremendous events happening every day. But we know he will do a superb job uh, before he continues on to the uh, post-war years of Grant. There'll be a new edition, the first really complete edition of the memoirs of U.S. Grant. But enough of that. This morning I am happy to present John Simon who will discuss Grant as commander. John? <laughs> Mr. Newman, uh says he has a problem figuring out a new way to introduce me. He's done it again. <laughs> I'll have him introduce me every day, see if he can keep it up. I think he could. I wish Merle Sumner would tell me there'd be a few people here. I would have uh, taken some pains to write a good paper. <laughs> I was expecting the usual. I'm going to try. How's this? Can you hear me? How's that? That ought to wake you up. I'd like to uh, begin at some distance uh, from the subject by mentioning that time glamorizes warfare, or so it seems, from the number of contemporary Americans eager to dress in the uniforms of their ancestors to refight their battles. The American Civil War holds first place in reenactment or living history because of its preeminence in our past and because both sides are appropriately portrayed by Americans. Reenactors expend considerable effort, striving for authenticity of detail, yet the dimension of war that involves cruelty, suffering, and death cannot be recreated. Reenacted war necessarily appears more heroic, more commendable, more attractive than reality. Consequently, from time to time, historians need to discuss the dark side of the war, assuming that they can discover and explain that dimension of the conflict. We cannot easily escape viewing the distant past with predetermined concerns based on recent experience. And we can do greater justice to the reality of that past by attempting to recognize those concerns that shape both the questions we ask and the answers we get. 
Specifically, for nearly a quarter century, some scholars have used American experience in Vietnam as a prism through which to view the Civil War. And by acknowledging this, we can better understand the positive and the negative effects. Vietnam experience, for example, clarifies the traditional opening discussion of the Civil War comparing North and South in terms of population, industrial capacity, railroad mileage, and other material measures of strength. None of these factors apply to the outcome of the Vietnam War, and it's high time to question their relevance to the American Civil War. Like the Viet Cong, the American South possessed the advantage of a revolutionary cause. Confederates had more to win, their independence, the Northerners had to lose sovereignty over people who resented and might indefinitely challenge rule by others. The numbers and resources of the two adversaries are relevant only to the extent that people chose to use all their resources to convert war from a limited clash of organized armies into a people's conflict, a total war through a strategy of annihilation. Now, all of this might seem only tangentially related to the topic of the day. Had not Russell Wigley, a well-known historian of American military thought and action, credited Ulysses S. Grant and his principal subordinate, General William Tecumseh Sherman, with developing an American concept of total war with a strategy of annihilation. Basically, argues Wigley, during the first two years of the Civil War, the North employed a strategy of maneuver associated with Napoleon's campaigns, carefully studied by properly educated American military officers and implemented by General George B. McClellan and General Henry W. Halleck. Both generals emphasized the thorough training of volunteers and their cautious approach to the enemy until maneuver opened spectacular opportunity. Both sought to limit war to military personnel and to ignore civilians, white and especially black. When such strategy proved unsuccessful, the early chieftains gave way to a commander already associated with unconditional surrender and prepared to wage a people's war. This is essentially a people's contest, Lincoln had told Congress in July 1861 in a message explaining and justifying the coming of war. In this message, as elsewhere, Lincoln repeatedly used the word people, and he used it in a variety of contexts. For Wigley, however, a people's contest means something quite different. A war of populations rather than armies, something the Civil War became as armies ceased to respect civilian rights and began to subsist on or to destroy civilian resources. Grant himself commented on the widening scope of war in his memoirs, writing, Up to the Battle of Shiloh, I, as well as thousands of other citizens, believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly and soon if a decisive victory could be gained over any of its armies. Then, indeed, I gave up all idea of saving the Union except by complete conquest. Up to that time, it had been the policy of our army, certainly of that portion commanded by me, to protect the property of the citizens whose territory was invaded, without regard to their sentiments, whether union or secession. 
After this, however, I regarded it as humane to both sides to protect the persons of those found at their homes, but to consume everything that could be used to support or supply armies. This policy, I believe, exercised a material influence in hastening the end. Now, this passage is somewhat misleading, for Grant did not implement these views immediately after Shiloh, and they had limited application through the Vicksburg campaign. Indeed, this policy awaited his appointment to top command in spring 1864. By that time, the broad concept of war had permeated both armies. Now, I do agree with Wagley that the war took on a new character somewhere around midpoint, but disagree with his explanation. In February 1862, when Grant demanded the unconditional surrender of Confederate General Simon Buckner, the phrase captured public attention both because of its succinctness and its echo of Grant's initials. Buckner labeled the demand ungenerous and unchivalrous before surrendering, which raised the question of whether Buckner's complaint had any validity. Closely examined, Buckner's point evaporates. General McClellan may have lacked the aggressive drive to surround and besiege a Confederate army, to say the least. <laughs> but if he had, he too would have demanded its unconditional surrender. Grant received his appointment to overall command in 1864 because he'd captured two armies and nearly destroyed another at Chattanooga. Buckner's reproach reflected the change in status of two old friends. An acquaintance at West Point and a fellow officer in the Mexican War, Buckner had guaranteed Grant's hotel bill in New York City in 1854 when Grant, who just resigned from the Army, failed to collect some money due him, never collected any money in his life, and had to wait for money from home before proceeding to join his wife and family in St. Louis. Buckner's reproach to Grant and Donaldson may have embarrassed him after the surrender when Grant joined him at breakfast and offered to loan him any money he might need. <laughs> Two higher-ranking Confederate generals had fled Donaldson, leaving Buckner in command. Buckner said that if he'd been in command, Grant would not have got up to Donaldson as easily as he did. Grant graciously answered that if Buckner had been in command, I should not have tried the way I did. <laughs> Thirty years after Buckner had helped the former captain, he again offered money when the former president lost everything. And then a year later, Buckner made a pilgrimage to Mount McGregor, where Grant was dying, coming both as a friend and as a representative of all the soldiers of the former Confederacy who appreciate Grant's magnanimity in victory. Unable to speak at this point, Grant wrote out his reply to Buckner, I've witnessed since my sickness just what I've wished to see ever since the war, harmony and good feeling between the sections. I've always contended if there had been nobody left but the soldiers, we would have had peace in a year. We may now look forward to a perpetual peace at home and a national strength that will secure us against any foreign complication. I believe myself that the war was worth all it cost us, fearful as that was. And then a month later, Buckner served as Grant's pallbearer. Understood in context, Grant at Donaldson represents only military mastery combined with clear-headed policy. 
He had no intention of humiliating or punishing his adversaries. He intended to take direct action to suppress the rebellion. His order allowing captured Confederate officers to retain their sidearms foreshadows a similar provision at Appomattox, but of course proved unrealistic in northern prison camps. <laughs> where they actually went with their sidearms, and they got very huffy when the guys tried to take them away. <laughs> Arguing that McClellan might have demanded the unconditional surrender at Donaldson is not the same as asserting that Grant represented only conventional military ideas of the period. From his entrance into the Civil War, he exhibited both a high degree of standard professionalism and also something that set him apart from other commanders. The second set of qualities represents the essence of his generalship and requires more careful analysis to understand Grant as a commander. When the war began, Grant wrote to his father that we're now in the midst of trying times when everyone must be for or against his country. Having been educated for such an emergency, at the expense of the government, I feel that it has upon me superior claims such claims as no ordinary motive of self-interest can surmount. End of Grant. At no point did the leather store clerk in Galena suggest that the war represented an opportunity to better his station in life. In this, he followed a pattern established at age 17 when his father forced him to attend West Point. Later, he recoiled from the battlefield horrors of the Mexican War, questioned the justification for that conflict, and hoped to leave the army to teach, or perhaps to farm. After he had resigned from the army in 1854 to reunite his family, only a profound sense of duty could call him back to service in 1861. His military education was equal to that of all other aspirants to command, and in fact exactly the same. Graduating at almost precisely the midpoint of his class at West Point, He'd neither succumbed completely to the attractions of his subjects, nor neglected them. Reading his lessons over once rather than studying intently gave him more time to read novels, and his natural aptitude for mathematics compensated for deficiencies in French, a subject emphasized to prepare officers to read the literature of Napoleon's campaigns. And this is something Grant never did. Looking for an opportunity to serve his country in 1861, he attracted the attention of Governor Richard Yates of Illinois, not because he knew how Napoleon fought at Austerlitz, but because he understood the mysteries of army regulations and the procedures of adjutant, quartermaster, and commissary duty. As Grant put it, at present I'm on duty with the governor, occupation, principally smoking, and occasionally giving advice as to how an order should be communicated, and so on. When he assumed command of the 7th Congressional District Regiment in Illinois, Grant's military style emerged. Governor Yates Hellions, an undisciplined bunch of farm boy rowdies, came to understand that their new colonel enforced military discipline. Unlike a previous colonel, who vacillated between Napoleonic bombast and willingness to accompany chicken-stealing expeditions, Grant established clear expectations of appropriate conduct, tempering the rigidity of the professional army with policy better suited to citizen volunteers. 
Building on 15 years of Army experience, Grant remained a learner. Sent against Confederate Colonel Thomas Harris in Missouri, Grant felt his heart mount to his throat as he approached the enemy for the first time, and then found that Harris had abandoned his camp. It occurred to me, writes Grant, at once that Harris had been as much afraid of me as I'd been of him. This was a view of the question I'd never taken before, but it was one I never forgot afterward. Grant began to study the celebrated tactics of uh, General Hardee, then realized that they embodied only common sense in the progress of the age applied to Winfield Scott's system. Drilling a regiment outside Mexico, Missouri, with these tactics would only work by first clearing away all the houses and fences in the neighborhood. Above all, Grant learned that there are no fixed laws of war. The laws of successful war in one generation would ensure defeat in another. In command at Cairo in September 1861, he displayed initiative in seizing Paducah after the Confederates had been first to violate the self-proclaimed neutrality of Kentucky by, by seizing Columbus. He'd asked permission for his expedition from General Vermont, but steamed toward Paducah before orders arrived. Technically, the orders had arrived. They were in Hungarian. Nobody knew how to read them. He didn't know they were there. He went anyway. <laughs> Fremont and the Hungarians is another topic. His proclamation to the people of Paducah stating, I have nothing to do with opinions, gave assurance of his purely military motives. The clarity of his phrasing was characteristic. Throughout the war, his orders, reports, and correspondence nearly always reflected the clarity of his thought. His early displayed aptitude for mathematics served him well in wartime in applying logic to the complex problems of command, detaching them from either the political or the emotional. He launched his first battle at Belmont in November 1861 without clearly planning his objectives. In later reports and correspondence, he gave a variety of explanations for the attack and different assessments of the consequences. Belmont became part of this learning process. By the close of the war, as Grant mastered the far more complex problems of overall command, his clarity, detachment, and breadth of thought appeared in his writing as notably as in the Appomattox campaign. He understood the strengths and limitations of his volunteer soldiers and proved an excellent judge of his principal subordinates. Both Sherman and Sheridan, for all their prominence and responsibility before the end of the war, needed Grant's firm hand to bring out their strengths. Only Grant could have found the proper role for Halleck in Washington in 1864 that made use of his superb administrative strength without allowing his caution to interfere with strategy. From start to finish of the war, Grant accepted responsibility for whatever command he held and used available resources, never asking an increase of force or authority. Before launching the spring campaign of 1864, he wrote to Lincoln that should my success be less than I desire and expect, the least I can say is, the fault is not with you. At no point did Grant, who'd married into a southern slaveholding family and become, however briefly, a slaveholder himself, uh, show a special animosity toward Confederates. Uh, 
On the contrary, he appears sensitive to suffering on both sides. Grant reaffirmed his sympathy for the South late in life when a reporter introduced himself as a former Confederate soldier who'd fought at Fort Donelson and later at Champions Hill. Grant said, I honor all Confederate soldiers as I do all brave, conscientious men. You were not at fault. Your leaders were. They knew that a Southern Confederacy was impossible and ought not to be. I was fighting not against the South, but for it. In every battle, I felt a sympathy for you, and I felt that I was fighting for North and South, for the whole nation. Now, how could such a man have developed a strategy of annihilation? The increasing bitterness of the conflict requires another explanation. On the 1st of January, 1863, the Civil War changed from a rebellion that might conceivably end through negotiation to a struggle that could only end through the surrender of Confederate forces. This change occurred not because Grant had demanded unconditional surrender, but because the momentum of conflict had forced the North to assault slavery. Through the preceding year, Lincoln had explored every avenue of negotiating with the border states for peaceful emancipation and had been rebuffed by slaveholding loyalists and undermined by Northern Republicans. To Confederate leaders, any resolution without preservation of slavery remained unacceptable and, for that matter, even unthinkable. Once emancipation became Northern policy, the war took on a new bitterness that increased as Southern suffering mounted. Even before receiving a commission in the war, Grant wrote of his apprehension of a slave insurrection, assuming that North and South would join forces to suppress it. Through the early period of the conflict, he carefully followed government policy regarding slaves, exhibiting a sure instinct in avoiding political issues. At midpoint, the war changed, not through Grant's wishes and intentions, but through the momentum of the struggle itself into a war against slavery, in which the slaves themselves, or former slaves, fought to achieve their freedom. The use of black troops beginning in 1863 had considerable impact in changing the nature of the war, especially in embittering the uh, Confederates. Like many other conventionally trained officers and typical Americans, Grant first underestimated the fighting ability of former slaves. But the heroic defense of Milliken's Bend in June 1863 converted him to a position never abandoned that this new resource, just like the railroad and the telegraph, should enter into military calculations. <coughs> Grant's role in the use of black troops received relatively little attention because of his own avoidance of any dramatics. Characteristically, he conscientiously followed orders from Washington when any reluctance might easily have hampered implementation of the new policy. By the close of the war, the large number of black troops available at Petersburg gave him the opportunity to launch the Appomattox campaign. Finally, he had enough troops to hold the siege lines and also to break through um, on Lee's flank. Southern intransigence concerning black troops influenced the breakdown of prisoner exchanges in early 1864. Confederate insistence on returning captured blacks to their former masters 
and treating white officers of the U.S. colored troops as criminals exacerbated unresolved issues of accounting for troops by regular man-for-man -man exchange and influenced Grant to suspend negotiations for further exchanges. By midsummer, Grant recognized the regular exchanges benefited the South more than the North, if only because he believed the released Confederates returned immediately to the ranks while U.S. troops more often went home to recuperate. By his grim arithmetic, imprisoned rebels, quote, amounted to no more than dead men, unquote. Exchange, they'd fight on until their metaphorical status became real. Grant's calculations condemned thousands to the sufferings of Andersonville while bringing the end of war closer. Throughout the war, death from disease had outstripped loss in battle, and the humane path had never been clear. By 1864, with all hope of negotiation extinguished, the only way to end loss of life was to end the war. Hindsight persuades us that Gettysburg and Vicksburg turned the tide of war toward inevitable northern uh, victory, but only because Confederate armies won no smashing victories afterward, and this leaves unexplained Lincoln's apprehension in the summer of 1864 that the Democrats would capture the White House and abandon the struggle to reclaim the South. So I remember Lincoln's famous uh, memorandum for his uh, cabinet that he had everybody sign without reading it, a memorandum the like of which Richard Nixon never would have gotten away with, uh, one that pledged these people to support the new administration. As Grant prepared to lead the Army of the Potomac toward Richmond in April 1864, Lincoln explained how he'd come to war against slavery and to employ black troops. He wrote to a Kentucky editor, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. Lincoln and Grant shared this capacity to accept reality and alter course as required for ultimate victory. This was perhaps their strongest bond in the last year of the war. Grant devised a coordinated plan to apply the strength of all the Union armies against the Confederacy. The Army of the Potomac faced Lee with no greater superiority in strength than McClellan and his successors possessed. But this time, Grant intended to make the odds count. Grant's reputation as a soldier, callously willing to accept enormous casualties, rests almost entirely on the spring campaign of the Army of the Potomac, from the Rapidan to Petersburg. And those casualties were enormous, an estimated 55,000, nearly equal to the initial size of Lee's entire army. Yet this campaign followed many others uh, of Grant's, none spectacularly high in casualties. The only battle he'd previously fought resulting in egregious losses was Shiloh, where of course he'd been attacked, and the ferocity of the fighting reflected Confederate tactics to which Grant could only react. Indeed, the May campaign in Mississippi leading to the encirclement of Vicksburg was remarkable for low U.S. losses. So the spring 64 campaign should neither be minimized nor allowed to wrench Grant out of all perspective. Casualties ran in a ratio of five to three. Overall, perhaps more costly to Confederates 
with lower replacement capacity. The alternative to the heavy losses of the wilderness in Spotsylvania, which was a regrouping near Washington, carried with it all the implications of future losses in Virginia, an opportunity for Lee as well as Grant to regroup, and an unacceptable blow to northern morale. Further, as Grant planned an overall offensive, disengagement would have permitted Confederate deployment against other U.S. armies. After the disastrous Battle of Cold Harbor, Grant, displaying the indomitability and resilience that had brought him to top command, plunged into the strategy that would carry the Army of the Potomac across the James, free the Army under Benjamin F. Butler from the bottleneck at Bermuda 100, and take U.S. forces into Petersburg to cut the railroad lines from Richmond. He then forced Lee to fight on the offensive or suffer the loss of the Confederate capital. The movement across the James, a brilliantly executed flanking movement that left Lee guessing the whereabouts of the U.S. Army, turned into the prelude to a devastating disappointment when General William F. Smith inexplicably failed to take the thinly held defensive lines of Petersburg on June 15th, and overwhelming U.S. forces repeatedly botched the assault until Lee completed his final occupation on June 18th. In retrospect, this failure to capture Petersburg invalidated the success of bringing the whole Army of the Potomac to the back door of Richmond. Grant's army then settled into a siege destined to last until the following April, but without any realization of the magnitude of this stalemate. An innovative and resourceful plan at the end of July to crack the Confederate line through the uh, explosion of a mine led only to further disappointment, as once again Union Command fumbles canceled strategic opportunity. The miserable failure, and that's Grant's phrase, actually made Grant ill. What, then, of the strategy of annihilation and unconditional surrender? Strategic circumstances forced Grant to maintain the siege of Petersburg to immobilize Lee so that he could not detach troops to operate against Sherman in Georgia. Lincoln controlled all political negotiations. When Confederate emissaries arrived at City Point at the end of January in 1865 to discuss peace, only Grant's encouragement brought Lincoln to what proved to be an unproductive conference at Hampton Roads. One month later, Grant received explicit instructions to discuss no political matter with Lee, only the capitulation of his army, orders strictly obeyed at Appomattox. As war dragged on, it became uglier. Sheridan executed vigorously Grant's instructions to destroy the Shenandoah Valley as a source of Confederate supply. And behind the lines in Virginia, Confederate re regulars under John S. Mosby combined with guerrillas to create anarchy in northern Virginia that brought federal retaliation. Ultimately, Mosby and General Custer deserved each other, but decent soldiers and civilians suffered. Events in Virginia were overshadowed by Sherman's march to the sea in late 1864, then his even more destructive campaign in the Carolinas. James Reston, Jr., in his 1984 book, Sherman's March in Vietnam, argues that Sherman abandoned traditional military ethics and allowed his troops to ravage the South in outrageous fashion that foreshadowed 
American Atrocities in Vietnam. The book combines travelogue and reminiscence with research and rest and traced much of the campaign, perhaps exaggerating these atrocities in order to highlight the generous peace terms that followed and establish them as a model for amnesty to opponents of the Vietnam conflict. Now, Reston's book, which is ultimately unconvincing, both on Sherman and Vietnam, at least makes explicit the effort to relate the Civil War to Vietnam, something unmentioned in William McFeely's grant, but certainly there. McFeely solved the old riddle of Grant as brilliant soldier, inept president, by denying that any special ability influenced generalship. This is McFeely. He had learned, or had somehow always known, how simple war is. Ulysses Grant, in his throwaway lines, in his throwaway life, kept trying to get people to see the colossal sick joke. All you do is take the nicest guy on the block, the one who will not be diverted by dreams of vainglory or revenge or by the nonsense of masochism, and knowing he's not good for much else, let him act on the bald fact the war means killing the guy on the other side, or at least scaring him badly enough so they'll quit fighting. That all this man has to do is keep the fact in mind all the way to Appomattox. End of McFeely. McFeely differed from previous detractors of Grant chiefly because the civil rights movement of the 1960s prevented any sympathy with Grant's adversaries, Confederates in the field, or Democrats in politics. One perceptive reviewer commented that this version of Grant may not have been able to pass muster before the Vietnam era, but it seems just right, credible, and corrective for our present time and condition. What it seems just right for Grant is the unmentioned question there. Although McFeely interpreted Grant in light of the lessons of Vietnam, he did not build upon lessons that were universally recognized. Indeed, some of the reinterpretation of Grant and other Civil War themes represents part of the skirmish line in this clash of differing interpretations of the meaning of the Vietnam War. At the least, however, Vietnam diminished American respect for military professionalism, and the reputations of Grant and Sherman may suffer for this. Concurrently, the new social history may encourage researchers to avoid generals and focus on the men in the ranks. New concerns in the wake of Vietnam, uh, color Philip Paladin's book, Victims, A True Story of the Civil War, a masterfully detailed analysis of the 1863 massacre of 13 Unionists who were suspected guerrillas by Confederate uh, soldiers in an isolated corner of North Carolina. Paladin relies upon psychologists who studied Vietnam while broadening their analysis. Combining military history with the new social history, Joseph uh, Glothar, who wrote a book, The March to the Sea and Beyond, Sherman's Troops in the Savannah, and uh, Carolina Campaigns explores the most destructive campaign of the war from the perspective of the troops rather than that of their commanders. Demands that history be written from the bottom up, hardly innovative in a field in which Bell Wiley and Bruce Catton pioneered, promise additional insight, though perhaps not the record of class oppression and conflict that many have, would hope for. Would better history and biography of the Civil War result with the Vietnam War forgotten and ignored? 
Well, to begin with, the question requires the impossible assumption that modern historians detach themselves completely from their society and all contemporary preoccupations. They profit more, I believe, by understanding that society and its assumptions and displaying their cards face up. To make the Civil War play a subordinate role in an ongoing effort to come to grips with the Vietnam experience does a disservice to the past, and to treat it as a romantic exception to the horrible reality of war does an equal disservice. The Civil War grew increasingly harsh as swords and roses gave way to rifles and bandages. Grant accepted the reality of that war, rejecting illusions of victory without fighting, or of a national conflict that left civilian life undisturbed. Grant represented the calm at the heart of the storm of battle, quietly and carefully thinking through problems without losing perspective, and he never lost sight of the ultimate goal of restoration of peace. The road that would take the nation to the end of the war in the shortest time, with the smallest loss of life, led through the wilderness, Spotsylvania, and Cold Harbor. The alternative to what has been mislabeled, a strategy of annihilation, meant a prolongation of killing. If Grant's realism is not mistaken for callousness, and his logic not mistaken for cruelty, then we can understand the commander who moved so relentlessly to Appomattox and, once there, began immediately a campaign for peace with justice. Thank you. made some statements about John's superiority as a scholar, and were I uh, an attorney addressing a jury, I would now say I rest my case. <laughs> the, the session is now open to questions, and I will take advantage of my position here to ask John a question that has nothing to do with his speech, but a lot to do with Grant. Can you tell people how to join the U.S. Grant Association? <laughs> easiest thing in the world. Um, we had some brochures out on the table, and I will see that when the coffee break comes, they will be scattered all over uh, tables. Uh, there will be more brochures than coffee. It is a $100 uh, lifetime membership for which you receive free books, a substantial discount on all uh, volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant, special invitations to events as we are able to arrange them, and the friendship of the directors. I might mention that we are now exploring the possibility of having the next meeting of the U.S. Grant Association close to Grant's birthday in 1987 at West Point. And now questions. Would you stand when you speak, please, and speak loudly? I would like to ask you your opinion of Grant's literary capacity when he started to write. I've been very impressed with him, and I just walked away. Um, let, let me get to this microphone so people can hear me in back. Uh, uh, it's my belief that uh, Grant as a writer is probably equal to Grant the general, that uh, he's a man with a literary bent. Uh, surprisingly well read. Part of this uh, stems from the fact that his, his wife suffered from an eye problem. Her eyes were 
crossed. It was difficult for her to read. The common pattern in the family was for Grant to read to his wife, and then when the children were old enough, to read to the entire family. Things like Dickens. Uh, so that uh, he knew something uh, about literature. He has a remarkably clear style in all his military communications because his mind is clear about what he's doing. And then at the close of his life, desperate to write for money when he's been ruined in a Wall Street swindle, he begins to write articles for the century that eventually grow into uh, the memoirs uh, which are so good when they're published that everybody thinks, well, maybe Mark Twain helped him along a little bit, wrote a little passage here and there. The better passages, however, uh, also appear in the Century articles, which uh, uh, had been published before Mark Twain became involved uh, with the project, which has led to a contrary view that, no, Mark Twain did not help uh, Grant with the memoirs, but perhaps Grant helped Twain with Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, it's got to go to Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> I know that cassettes of the talk will be available ultimately through the round table, and the Grant Association will, will decide whether they can afford to publish it. <laughs> Sir, you made the point that uh, Grant was a genius in picking his subordinates during the war. Yet, as president, that was one of his uh, chief failings, uh, reportedly. Can you explain that paradox? Probably not. <laughs> it bothers me, too. Uh, I suppose it's because when Grant enters upon the Civil War, he is building on 15 years in the Army and a wide acquaintance with West Point and its graduates who ultimately proved to be the successful commanders in that war. Now, after the war, he's virtually given the presidency as a reward for Appomattox. So sometimes it's put just that way. For Appomattox, the least we owe him is the White House. And again, he thought that he'd take the same attitude towards the rules that he'd taken during the war, toward consultation, which he always avoided during the war, and do things his own way. And uh, not having the same background, but determined to do it the same way. He would make repeated uh, mistakes in appointing people to office. But I think there's something else, too. These men he appointed to command uh, during the Civil War, or who sustained the, the successful commanders in that war. Now. After the war, he's virtually given the presidency as a reward for Appomattox. So sometimes it's put just that way. For Appomattox, the least we owe him is the White House. And again, he thought that he'd take the same attitude towards the rules that he'd taken during the war, toward consultation, which he always avoided during the war, and do things his own way. And uh, not having the same background, but determined to do it the same way. He would make repeated uh, mistakes in appointing people to office, but I think there's something else, too. These men he appointed to command uh, during the Civil War, or who sustained, uh, who were sustained in command, had an obligation to serve their country. Many of those who uh, were appointed to office after the war or held positions of authority seem to forget 
that high feeling of uh, resolve. I'm thinking particularly of a young officer like uh, Babcock, whose diaries I saw from afar last night, and uh, who turns out to be the Iago of the Grant administration. How he had turned uh, into such a scoundrel is a topic that just deserves further exploration through his diaries. Perhaps, as John, as Catton once mentioned, that a military man spends his entire life in awe and with tremendous, maybe too much respect, for the political apparatus because his whole career depends on their goodwill. And when he becomes president, it's hard to shake off that deference and you maybe accept advice and suggestions that you should fight off. One more question. Yes. You indicated uh, Grant Hill on prisoner exchange and uh, in regards to around 1863. Did that happen before or after Vicksburg? The men captured at Vicksburg were released on parole, and uh, part of the accounting broke down at that point as would happen on any man-for-man -man exchange in a situation where there was uncertainty about the real numbers. The surrender uh, at Vicksburg began to clog up the machinery for exchange, and Grant found it in poor shape uh, in early 1864, at which point General Butler had been placed in charge of it, which meant that it was administered in a very able and eccentric fashion. Uh, he had demanded exactly what the U.S. had coming to it by his life who would not budge an inch. So that with Butler in charge, it was relatively easy to shut down the whole thing. Uh, and in 1864, as the spring campaign opened, this is exactly uh, what happened. And Grant found it an advantage to keep men in prison rather than have them return to the field and be shot, whether uh, northerners or southerners.